for this afternoon. No need to read it again. You may want to keep it open in front of you. Brothers and sisters, there was a man uh, from my hometown back in Hamilton in Ontario, and I never had the pleasure of meeting him in all my time there. Uh, But I heard a number of stories about him. I heard that on cold, dark winter nights, uh, especially when there was a lot of snow or freezing rain, uh, on nights when it was maybe negative 10 or negative 20 or worse out, this man would set his alarm and he'd wake up in the middle of the night and he'd bundle himself up and he'd take all the food and blankets and socks and jackets that he could find. And he'd spend all night, all frigid night, walking the streets. He'd go downtown He'd go through dark, terrifying alleys, and he would go places where most people would usually avoid, especially in the dark. And he would go there for one purpose. There's only one reason he'd ever go there. He was looking for people who needed help. And at great personal expense, he would go out and help those who were otherwise helpless. And today in our passage, we get a picture of someone so much greater doing something somewhat similar. We get a picture of Jesus, too, going out of his way to help those who are helpless. And we'll see this in three parts. First, we'll see a helpless man enslaved. Secondly, we'll see a helpless man delivered. And then finally, we'll see a helpless man transformed. So first of all, a helpless man enslaved. If you're familiar with the New Testament, you might know that there are four Gospels. And Mark is the shortest one. John has 21 chapters, Luke has 24, and Mark has 28. Uh, Matthew has 28, rather, but Mark only has 16. And so often, as you can tell, Mark is pretty brief. His accounts of events are really boiled down to get his main point across and get it across very quickly. And you might remember uh, from a number of weeks ago now, uh, Jesus' baptism. The whole story of Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River is recounted in just three verses. You might remember Jesus' temptation right after that. Jesus' temptation is recounted in just two. That's it. Mark moves along fast. But this story is a little bit different, isn't it? Mark spends 20 verses on this story, more than any other gospel writer. And that should indicate right away that this is an important story. We should pay close attention. Mark is painting a vivid picture for us here. A major theme in his gospel is the coming kingdom of God. He's writing about a king, specifically about King Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, coming as a great and powerful king. A king who's making a kingdom, a kingdom like nobody has ever seen before. A kingdom that's not of this world. A kingdom where sinners and sufferers are welcomed in. A kingdom where the king doesn't exalt himself and demand to be served by others, but actually humbles himself and gives himself up for the sake of his people. A kingdom where citizens like us are called not to be strong or to be proud, rather just to stay with Christ our king and to follow in his footsteps. And so this text is very important. I wonder if you can begin to see why. It gives a picture of a very different kingdom. It gives the picture of the other side, of life apart from Christ, in the realm of Satan, the prince of the power of the air, as the Apostle Paul calls him. I love how Paul Tripp explains this on this passage. Paul Tripp grew up in Ohio, 
And apparently in Ohio, they have a tradition. So when someone commits some sort of a a traffic infraction in Ohio, uh, when they're caught speeding or running a red light or texting and driving, part of their sentence is often that they're made to watch a movie. They need to watch recordings of major traffic accidents and the aftermath of some of those horrible accidents. And And this shows the real dangers of speeding or texting, or driving recklessly. And this, of course, is a dreaded punishment. Who would want to watch such a heartbreaking video? But you can see why they do this. This video is supposed to be a graphic warning. It's supposed to wake you up to the the fact that speeding, or texting, or whatever, it's not just a small, harmless thing. It's dangerous. And the results can be disastrous horrifying. And that's, in a sense, what we have going on in this text. Mark spends all this time giving us a slow-motion, graphic look at the effects of sin and evil in the world. We get a look at the power of sin and Satan and what it looks like to live in Satan's kingdom rather than Christ's. A look at the description of this man overrun by sin and Satan. We can see that Mark tells us that Jesus and his disciples reach the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And as soon as they do, they're met by a man. A man who is quite disturbing, a terrifying, and also a heart-wrenching picture. A man runs towards them, Mark says, from out of the tombs. He runs from his home in the caves. Tombs carved out of the rocks of nearby cliffs. And the man we know, especially from other gospel writers, he had lived there for quite a long time. And Mark tells us he would wander around the mountains. And as he walked around, he would uh, spend time uh, just wandering and screaming, Mark says. Can you picture that? Other gospel writers tell us that no one would or could pass anywhere near this screaming man. You can imagine parents talking to their children, Warning their kids, saying, stay far away from this place. Stay far away from this man. Clearly, he was a danger to others. We're told that he was chased out of town. That they had often tried to pin him down. That they had tried to bind him with shackles and chains. But even that, shackles and chains, imagine that. Even those were no use. This man would rip them apart. He would break the shackles into pieces, Mark says. The man was a danger to others, and also a danger, we're told, to himself. Crying out and screaming day and night, we're told he would cut himself with stones. What was going on with this man? Well, we're told he had an unclean spirit, in verse 2. Though we're about to find out he had many more than just one unclean spirit. Here is a picture for you. Here's a picture for all of us of Satan's ideal subject in his kingdom. And that's important. Because apart from Christ, we need to remember, we need to admit, we need to humbly acknowledge, we are subjects of Satan's kingdom as well. Demon possession is actually very rare in history, even in the Bible. We mostly get cases like this, where the demons seem to to go crazy, around the time of Jesus Christ. That's when Satan and his minions got restless, because the Son of God himself was on earth. But we know that back then and before then, uh, stretching all the way 
to today. We know that all of us are in a somewhat, a little bit of a comparable situation, even if not so clear and terrifying. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The Spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So take a close look at this man, because he's a picture of someone who's a lot like us. An extreme example, absolutely, but a picture of what it's like to be ruled by Satan. He's living in a land that long ago used to belong to Israel, to the tribe of Manasseh specifically. But now this land is full of Gentiles and Jews who live like Gentiles. And this man too, he's a Gentile, far from the people of God. Far from God himself. This man is alienated from God. And not just from God and his people, but he's alienated from all people. He's living among the tombs. He's a danger to others. But more than that, he's a danger to himself. In a real sense, this man is alienated from himself, isn't he? Picture what we are supposed to be. Picture what God created us to be. This man is so far from that. He's impossible to restrain. Even laws can't stop him. Rules can't stop him. Chains can't stop him. And even if they could find chains that were strong enough, what help would those be really? Could even the strongest chains address the root issue here? The issue going on in his heart and his mind. And this is so important. That's why Mark dwells on it. Often we don't take sin and evil seriously enough, do we? None of us do. Pride, gossip, gluttony, lust, greed, and so on. Things that are against our nature. Things that alienate us from God and each other, and ourselves, who we're supposed to be. Things with a great capacity to hurt us and others, to grieve the Holy Spirit. We don't take them seriously, but we should. We should hate them and flee from them for the evil that they are. But this is how the devil works in Scripture, isn't it? Think of him at the the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. He questions Eve. He asks her, did God really say that you can't eat from any of these trees? The devil doesn't come promising alienation from God. Alienation from others, alienation from yourself. He doesn't come promising death. He doesn't come promising destruction or pain. Satan comes promising good things. He says, don't you want to eat this good food? It looks so tasty, doesn't it? Don't you want to know good and evil? Don't you want to be like God, he asks, pretending like they weren't already like God, made in his image. Likewise, we read, Satan tempts Jesus. And Satan says that he wants good things for Jesus. Have you noticed that before? Satan asks Jesus, aren't you hungry? Just make yourself something to eat. Don't you want to rule all the kingdoms of the world? Well, Satan says, I'll I'll gladly give them to you. Just worship me instead of your father. He asks, aren't you the son of God? 
Because the Son of God would listen to me and do this. Don't you trust God? Don't you trust his word? Come on, just jump off the temple. And this is how the devil works. He says, come on, a little bit of gossip. Little gossip's fun. Who get it hurt? It's not a big deal. A little bit of lust or fantasizing, what harm could it do? Stealing a little bit from your boss or cheating on your taxes, not a big deal. Sid and Satan says, "I, I just want what's good for you. But Satan is a liar. Watch the tape. It's explained so clearly here what kind of a ruler Satan is. He's evil. You know what the devil wants for you and for me? You want to know what kind of a ruler he is? He wants to hurt people. He wants to hurt you and me. He wants, you, he wants to hurt others through you. He wants you far from where you were created to be. He wants you far from God himself. Satan is an awful ruler. And here's his ideal citizen. Someone he firmly has his grips on. Someone tormented by a legion of demons. Often we speak about heaven and hell as future realities, right? And that's, that's fair. That's so true. They really are. We're looking forward to Jesus returning and bringing us to our true home. But sometimes we're reminded heaven's not just a future reality, right? We have a taste of heaven now. That's a beautiful truth we take comfort in. With Christ, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's already arrived in part. We already have God and we already dwell with him. But we often forget that hell is in part a present reality too. Life far from God. Life enslaved to evil and its consequences. And here we get a picture of that. A man who's living in a version of hell. Who, barring a miracle of God's grace, is on the road to hell for good. Here's a man who's turned his back on God and Satan's got him. Someone who's helpless on his own. Someone who's enslaved. But thankfully, help is on the way. Let's see now a helpless man delivered. So Jesus Christ steps off a boat nearby this man. What a coincidence. This is an odd place for Jesus to be, isn't it? It's a lonely area. Uh, For the first time, Jesus is outside of Israel in a territory that now belongs to the Gentiles and has for a very long time. He's near tombs. He's near a pig farm. We already mentioned earlier about the temptation of Jesus. Well, remember that event. Recall how at, at his temptation... Jesus was tired, and he was weak after 40 days of fasting in the wilderness. And that's when Satan came at him. That's when Satan himself attacked him, when Jesus was at his weakest. And Jesus won handily. Well, here our Lord goes on the offensive. It's a beautiful story. Jesus, in a sense, goes to Satan's house. He goes to his stronghold. And he's come here for this helpless man. As soon as the man sees him, he runs up to Jesus and he falls down, bowing before him. And there, right in front of him, Mark says, he screams. Crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Because Jesus was already saying, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. The man coming to Jesus for for help or to attack him or simply drawn by Jesus for his purposes, we don't know. But the man runs up and falls down before him. 
And when Jesus makes the demons tell us their names, we hear that this is a momentous event in history. This is a preview of what we'll see, hopefully very soon. A picture of what's to come on the day when Christ returns as judge of the living and the dead, and of Satan and the demons. The demons say they are called legion, because there are many of them. How many demons exactly? We have no idea. Some people think some dozens of them. Others think about 2,000 because of the pigs that we read. Many others think that this refers to a true Roman legion, which would be about 6,000 men. Regardless of how many devils exactly are there, the image is clear. This is military language. There is an army of demons in this man. And when they see Jesus, what does this army of powerful demons do? This army of demons, any one of them, so much stronger than this man, so much stronger than us, and all of them together, so much stronger than anyone could bound. All of these demons, as one troop, as one legion, bow before your Lord Jesus Christ. That's the power of Jesus. He calmed winds and waves with a word in the last passage, leaving the disciples questioning, who is this? Here's an army of demons, and they don't ask, who is this? They know immediately who this is. They know, and they tremble. They beg Jesus not yet to torment them. They know that their torment is coming for what they've done. John Calvin says they already have a guilty conscience. They know what they deserve. They know what Jesus will hold them accountable from. But they seem aware that this is not yet God's time to punish them. But these demons are so powerful, powerless that they can't even flee from Jesus, really. Did you notice that? They need to ask Jesus if they can flee to the nearby pigs once they're sent out. And why do they ask to go into the pigs? Well, we don't know for sure, but they likely want to harm and destroy the pigs, as they do end up doing, as they had been doing to this man for so long. More than that, they likely think that they have a brilliant plan, a devious plot. They likely think that by wreaking havoc, they can turn the nearby people against Jesus. And to our shock, Jesus allows it. He gives them permission. And many wonder why. And fair enough, the full answer isn't entirely clear. But I think two reasons are very, very clear. First of all, this act shows so clearly the power and the nature, nature of these demons in this man. Without that part of the story, we might get the picture that, or the idea that the demons aren't that powerful, seeing how they cower before Jesus. But here again, we're given a clear picture of their violent nature, their massive power, their destructive tendencies. The demons enter 2,000 pigs. Can you imagine the size of that herd? The demons terrify these pigs, and they stampede straight into the sea. What a terrifying scene. Can you imagine their, their squealing and stampeding? We read in verse 14, the herdsmen fled, and they told the story everywhere in the city and in the country. What power is shown of the demons? And it's good that the demons' power is showed in this way, put on display, because that shows how much greater the power of Jesus Christ is. That he even needs to give them permission 
to enter these pigs. What a comfort for us. People who are at times can be intimidated by Satan or by demons as well. First of all, Jesus shows his power by showing the power of the demons. But more than that, in letting the demons take the pigs, Jesus shows his great compassion. Many people don't see this in the passage. They get distracted thinking about the pigs. And I'm assuming that they're forgetting that tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of pigs are slaughtered every day for food. But the question here isn't whether God cares about pigs, is it? We don't need to answer that question here because we know very clearly from Scripture, don't we, that God does care about his animals. He does care about his creation. We know that God loves his creation and he cares for and feeds his animals. We also know that the demons are the ones who don't. They love to harm and destroy even when they lie and they tell us that they just want our good. What we get here isn't a picture of how little Jesus cares for pigs. The demons will be punished for their harms of the pigs and this man and their harms of so many others uh, of Jesus' people. But what we get here is a picture of just how much Jesus cares for this man. This man. This man that, let's be honest, not a lot of other people cared for at this point. Did they? You think anyone really cared about this man? They were just happy he was out of town. They were happy he was far away. They probably would have been happy if someone went out there one day and found out he was dead. No. Jesus cares about this man, and he cares about him a lot. Jesus tells us elsewhere in the Gospels, when you're scared or when you're anxious, you should take some time to look at the sparrows. Look at the grass and the flowers. Jesus assures us God cares for these things. And Jesus says, how much more will he care for you than for the birds or for the grass? And you can do this. I can do this. I'd recommend taking this literally. When I was really, really anxious, like feeling sick for my class's exam, I was studying that passage and then I just literally did it. I'm like, I'm going to listen to Jesus. And so I stopped and set aside my studying and I just watched the birds for a little bit. And it calms you down, but so much more so when you reflect on Christ's words and take them seriously. God really does care for all of these birds and he feeds them. And he really does care so much more for us. And now we can think of a math question for a second. How many sparrows do you think are worth one pig? I don't know. Probably a lot of sparrows to add up in value to one pig, right? Well, this man, this sad, terrifying man, to Jesus, this man is worth far more than an enormous farm full of pigs. For Jesus, it's not even a question. Yes, demons, take the 2,000 pigs, but you leave this man alone. This man is mine. What power Christ has and what compassion. Though evil is everywhere, though demons are so much more powerful than we are, we have nothing to fear because Jesus is so powerful and so compassionate. Jesus is an amazing help even for the most helpless. 
So having seen a helpless man delivered, we'll now see him transformed. So this man was a picture of us, dead in transgressions and sins, utterly enslaved by evil and by the devil. But the pig farmers run away, and they tell people of the remarkable things they just saw. They come running from all around. People come to see and see this man radically transformed. Earlier we pictured the man running around, screaming, attacking others, harming himself. Now what do we see in verse 15? They came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. They see this man sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And Luke tells us where exactly they see him sitting. They see him sitting at Jesus' feet. People saw this and they heard all that had happened with this demon-possessed man and how the demons had destroyed a huge herd of pigs. And now the pig pens were empty, the lake was full, and they saw this madman sitting calmly at Jesus' feet, talking to him, listening to him, asking questions of him in his right mind. And so the people, as we read, were terrified. The people didn't know who this Jesus was, but they knew right away he was enormously powerful. And they also knew that having him around was going to radically change and radically disrupt their lives. So notice what the people do. The people don't just leave. That kind of would have made sense, right? They don't just not listen to Jesus. No, they do the same thing with him that they had done with the demon-possessed man before. They try to drive him away. Even worse, the people here, they do the same thing that the demons did when they saw Jesus. Did you notice that? When the demons saw Jesus, they essentially said, Jesus, leave us alone. What do you have to do with us? Mark tells us here that the people too, they came and then they begged Jesus to go away. What an upsetting picture. These people have just seen the Messiah. They've just seen a picture of his power and his care and compassion. They've seen a picture of his ability and willingness to save even this man they'd all forgotten about. They should praise Jesus. They should thank him. They should fall down and worship him. Like the man who was healed, they should have sat at his feet and be willing to hear whatever this man said. But instead, all they say is, Jesus, please leave. Charles Spurgeon, a 19th century preacher, uh, suggests that these men are uh, a lot like many of us. He reflects on this verse saying that you can imagine these people love to be quiet. They just like things how they were. They like to dwell at ease. And this, this was a great calamity that had happened to the swine that they had run into the sea. And they didn't want any more calamities. Evidently, the person who had come among them possessed extraordinary powers, Spurgeon says. Had he not healed the demoniac? Well, they didn't want him. They didn't want anything extraordinary. They were easygoing men who would like to go on in their even tenor of their way. So they asked him to be good enough to go away and leave them alone. 
And this is what many people want when confronted with Jesus. Spurgeon explains that many people outside of the church, they just don't want to hear about Jesus because they don't want their lives disrupted. They just want to be left alone. But as Spurgeon explains, we shouldn't think this just happens outside the church either. It happens inside. It happens to us as well. Sometimes we too, in a moment of clarity, will get a glimpse of who Christ really is. A glimpse of what the gospel really means, what God really is like. How powerful he is, how holy he is, how gracious and kind and compassionate, and what he demands of us in his word, what he offers to give us in his word. We'll catch a glimpse, and we'll see that this is huge. That this, if we listen to the Bible, it's going to radically change every day. It's going to radically change our lives. It's going to destroy our priorities. It's going to change everything. Oh no, we don't want that. We don't want to be challenged. We don't want to be disturbed. We certainly don't want following Jesus to cost us anything, let alone everything. And so these people, remember these people who are also far from God, these people who are also ruled by the prince of the power of the air, And by their own evil, although not so obviously as this man, of course, they tell Jesus, just go away. And the terrifying thing in our text is, Jesus listens. Jesus gets in his boat to go. What's the good of him staying if they won't hear? If they won't listen? If he stayed and he preached again, Spurgeon says, it might have only made them guiltier as they rejected the gospel and Jesus Christ over again as they try to drive him away, maybe even by force next time. And so Jesus leaves. Imagine for a second again the demon-possessed man for a moment. Imagine as they begged, the crowds begged Jesus to go, and Jesus began to listen. You can imagine this healed man arguing with the crowd, and arguing with Jesus even. You can imagine just how he felt. What's the message he would have got from the crowd? That the people cared far more about their pigs and about their comfortable way of life, then they cared about him, the one so amazingly saved, that they cared about his Savior, the one who is able and willing to help even him. But no, the people made their choice. They wanted the status quo more than they wanted Jesus. And the same thing would happen later in Jesus' life, wouldn't it? As the people of Israel, God's own people, led by the teachers of the law, tried to get rid of Jesus once and for all. When asked by Pilate, the governor, when he asked them what they wanted him to do with Jesus, they called out altogether, crucify him, crucify him. When pressed, they said, give us Barabbas. Give us the murderous rebel instead. Just take away this Jesus. Just let us go back to life as normal. And so, of course, the healed man thinks so differently. He's thankful to Jesus Christ, and he begs him to stay. He asks that Jesus would disrupt his life, that he he would take all of him. Uh, May we be the same way, asking that Jesus would transform us, if that's his will. He has a better will for our lives than we do. May our song and our prayer always be, Jesus, take my life and let it be consecrated, God to thee. But this time, in answer to this request, Jesus strangely says no. And this, I think, is one of the most beautiful parts of the whole story. We need to think again for a minute. Who was helpless at the beginning of the story? 
It was the demon-possessed man, wasn't it? Who is helpless at the end of the story? It's these crowds of people. Far from God, far from his people. People who desperately need help, who need the gospel. But as soon as they catch a glimpse of Jesus, they send him away. People who desperately need help, but don't even know it. Those are the people who are helpless now. People who are scared of Jesus and just want to go back to their ignorance and slavery and sin. But Jesus isn't done with these helpless people yet. He tells the man, you stay here. We read in verse 19, And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Jesus makes this man the first missionary. And he would be a great missionary, wouldn't he? Can you imagine hearing his testimony? He had such a wonderful story to tell. A story of Jesus' power and his compassion. When people asked him, this Jesus that you're talking about, how will I know, do I know that he'll be able to heal me? How do I know he'll be able to help me, to save me? This man would be able to explain. He would say, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you what I was like before Jesus came. And he'd tell them about the many demons inside of him and the huge herd of pigs who ran into the sea. And when people questioned this man and said, how do I know Jesus will be willing to save even me? How do I know this Jesus will care for even me? Someone might ask. And the man could assure them, again, Jesus loved me and he cared for me. Brothers and sisters, what a story he has. And brothers and sisters, we can tell the same story, can't we? And we should. As long as the Lord leaves us here, we should tell to others, to tell to our children and our neighbors and our friends that there's someone who saved us from the grips of Satan. Because Jesus didn't just gives up, give up pigs for this man. And he didn't just sacrifice a herd of pigs for you and for me. But in fact, Jesus had to give up so much more, didn't he? This man was amazed and blown away by this story already. But Jesus sacrificed so much more for us, didn't he? This man didn't know yet what we do know. For this outcast, and for outcasts like us, Jesus had come down to the other side, to enemy territory, to himself become an outcast. Jesus, quite soon, he was going to allow himself to be arrested, and in a sense, bound up. He would allow his own body to be broken, beaten with whips, nailed to a cross. He would allow himself to be alienated from men and alienated from God himself. That was the price that this king, the king of the Jews, was willing to pay, even for the least of the citizens of his kingdom. Brothers and sisters, in this passage, we get a picture of a far better king. Satan, the prince of the power of the air, is a liar. He doesn't want your good. He doesn't want your pleasure. He wants your destruction. But this king is so different. This king is so good. This king, Jesus Christ, is the helper of the helpless. And Nick and Darcy and Chris and Caitlin, it's so wonderful that you commit yourselves to this king and you commit yourselves to telling 
your, your little children about him, raising them up so that they know him too. And Simon, Eric, we're, we're so excited and thankful that you're about to devote yourselves to this far better king as well. Flee the prince of the power of the air. Flee to Jesus Christ today and then every day again. And then tell the story to your children. Tell the story to your neighbors, to everyone else, that they might flee to him for help too. This demoniac, he, he gets just a picture of Jesus' power and his love. And he wanted to tell everyone. And we don't honestly hear anything else about him after this. Except that what we read in the last te- uh, verse of our text. That he did go away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis. Uh, that means ten cities. Ten whole cities. He went and proclaimed in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. And we don't really know how his work went, except I think we get a little bit of a picture. We have to read into the text a little bit. In two more chapters, Jesus would come back to this land. He would come back for these people. And this time he wasn't driven away. This time a great crowd of over 4,000 people came to listen to Jesus from far and wide. Many of them stayed with him for three days. They didn't even leave for food. They became so hungry uh, uh, while they were there because they were more hungry to hear what Jesus had to say. They wanted Jesus to disturb their lives. They wanted to hear him. They wanted to know him. These people were ready for a disturbance in their lives, and I hope and pray that we are too. This Sunday and every Sunday when we come to God's house together, when we read God's word together, I hope we're ready to be transformed, have our lives shaken up, These people were ready to meet the helper of the helpless who left heaven and all its glories to become an outcast, to come into the dark and the cold and to enter the heart of the territory of the devil. And he did it simply to set helpless people free, to set you and me free from the prince of the power of the air. Amen. Let's sing together in response, Abide with me. Senses 1, 2, and 3, standing as we sing.
I'd like to ask Simon Eichema and Eric Timmerman to come and join me uh, up here for your profession of faith. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank the Lord our God for the grace given to us by adopting us to be his children and receiving us into his covenant. We acknowledge his love and power by which he instills in his children the desire to publicly profess their faith in him and the presence of his holy church so that they may receive admission to the Holy Supper. Since you have now come here to make this profession before God and his holy church and hereby to receive admission to the Holy Supper, we ask you to answer sincerely the following questions. First, do you wholeheartedly believe the doctrine of the word of God summarized in the confessions and taught here in this Christian church? Do you promise by the grace of God steadfastly to continue in this doctrine in life and in death, rejecting all heresies and errors conflicting with God's word? Second, do you acknowledge God's covenant promises, which have been signified and sealed to you in your baptism? Do you truly detest and humble yourself before God because of your sins and seek your life outside of yourself in Jesus Christ? Third, do you declare that you love the Lord your God and that it is your heartfelt desire to serve him according to his word, to forsake the world, to crucify your old nature? Fourth, do you firmly resolve to commit your whole life to the Lord's service as a living member of his church? Do you promise to willingly submit willingly to the admonition and discipline of the church if it should happen? And may God graciously prevent it, that you become delinquent either in doctrine or in conduct. Simon, what is your answer? And Eric, what is your answer? Praise God. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. On behalf of the consistory, we have growing in the gospel and gentle and lowly for each of you. I was told your names are in the books. I think this one's for you. If not, you guys can trade afterwards. Awesome. Thanks so much. Please go take a seat and join us as we sing together from Psalm 116.